Welcome everyone to episode 47 of Ohio Unsolved. I'm your host Matthew, and today is a very special episode, because it's the one year anniversary episode of Ohio Unsolved. Tomorrow, October 8th, is the official one year anniversary, but today we celebrate. The giveaway will go live tomorrow through the Facebook group, so if you want a chance to win an Ohio Unsolved t-shirt and sticker pack, make sure that you're in the group to take part in the giveaway. But let's just get right into the episode. Everyone sit back, make sure to lock your doors and windows, and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. Today's story is about the disappearance and murder of Rachel Berkheimer. The story is a little graphic, so listener discretion is advised. Rachel Berkheimer was described as a beautiful young woman who was funny, giving, and at times could also be a bit of a prankster. She had a smile that could light up a room, and she never forgot any of her friends or family members' birthdays. She was very outgoing and made friends very easily. Her father would say that she was involved in so many social groups that he couldn't keep up. He was just her answering machine. As a very young child, her parents thought that she might be deaf because she didn't start talking until she was almost three years old. But once she started talking, they couldn't stop her. She had a big imagination and had a range of funny voices that would keep her family entertained for hours. She was only 4 feet 11 inches tall, but her friends described her as mighty and independent. She had 4 inch heels that she wore everywhere and a toolbox sized makeup kit. In August of 2001, Rachel lost one of her best friends in a deadly car accident. Corey Haynes and Rachel were very close, and she took his sudden death very hard. She put pictures of him all over the dashboard of her car, and even more in her bedroom. Rachel's father said that the two were soulmates, and it was a brother-sister relationship. Over the next year, Rachel lost six more friends to wrecks, drowning, suicide, and an accidental shooting. But it was Corey's death that they believe really changed her. Her sister Megan would say that his death killed her. 
that she became so heartbroken that she just, her light was gone. Rachel became severely depressed, and her parents took her to a therapist, hoping that it would help. She left Marysville Pilchuck High School, and she began learning at an alternative school, but shortly thereafter dropped out. She continued working at Jimmy's Pizza and Pasta for a while, but then left her job and babysat. She had lost all direction. She was once a girl who laughed all the time and compulsively made to-do lists, and she wrote her weekly goals on a dry erase board above her bed. Rachel further slept into a, slipped into a deep depression. She began using drugs and drifting further away from her family. She was on a downward spiral when she began using cocaine and methamphetamine. Her father, worried about Rachel's misdirection, and had confronted her on several occasions, finally telling her to get a job or go back to school. Rachel had so much potential, I never felt like she would not complete her education. I just knew that she hit a stuck point, her father said. And Rachel's spiral downward, she found herself hanging around a rough group of people. One was John Diggy Anderson. Local police would later say that he was in and out of jail and in a gang, and no good would come from him. It was kind of in the infant stages, and it was a real stupid name. They called themselves the Northwest Mafia, and Detective Brad Pence of the Snohomish County Sheriff's Office they would steal drugs, sell some of them, and then use the rest. They had no other ambition in life. They would sit around and play video games, smoke dope, and did cocaine and meth and partied. Bill Berkheimer would find out about Rachel's relationship with Diggy when he received a bill for $640 from the phone company. The bill said that the phone calls came from the correctional facility in Shelton, Washington. Rachel was also receiving fanatical letters from Diggy. She would find out that he was perilously jealous. Worried, her father confronted Rachel. She kept talking about how she saw good in him, and he wasn't what people think he is, her father said. According to friends, Diggy was so jealous that he would sniff Rachel's hair and clothing to see if she had been with other men. Her sister Megan recalls seeing bruises on Rachel. The relationship was a roller coaster, and Rachel received many threats from Diggy, but her family said that she was finally beginning to see the light shortly before her death. She sat on the end of my bed, and she was talking until 2 a.m. about her fears, about her concerns about Diggy, and the different threats that he had been giving her, said Megan. Megan said Rachel had finally had enough and was forging new relationships with her family and finally reclaiming her life. One morning, a beautiful Sunday morning, she's sitting on our porch and she has this radiance again that I have not seen in a few months. And she looked up and said, I have met an incredible friend, Maurice, her father said. Maurice Rivas was also a member of the Northwest Mafia, but he told Rachel 
that he was looking for a way out. He and Rachel had formed a bond in their goal to break free. Unfortunately, Diggy would not let that day happen, and Maurice would be forced to make the most important decision of his life. In an attempt to get other gang members to turn on Rachel, Diggy told them that Rachel was telling their gang secrets to her friends. And this terrified Rachel, and she went to her sister Megan for advice. I told her, look, you need to be aware, you need to be cautious, stay away from him, said Megan. Admittedly, Megan thought that Diggy was just being a young punk, and she dismissed the threats as just talk. On a cool September evening in 2002, Rachel went to a party with seven members of the Northwest Mafia. She was with Maurice, so she felt safe. She was also trying to show her friends that she had not deceived them. According to True Crime Daily, John Diggy Anderson arrived at the party where they were all sitting around on a couch, laughing and smoking marijuana. Diggy didn't like what he was seeing, and it angered him. Diggy came in from outside of the duplex, and he's angry, because everybody's having such a good time, said Detective Pence. He would then smack a couple of the kids in the face. Guns were drawn among the group, and when the confrontation escalated, Rachel tried to get up quietly and leave, but she would never even make it to the door. He grabbed her by the hair, hit her in the face, knocked her down on the floor, and a couple of other guys even started helping, said the detective. They kicked Rachel in the head repeatedly, and then someone in the room ordered for the stereo to be turned up so that her screams could not be heard outside. They scooped up Rachel, took her out to the garage, and gagged and taped her mouth shut so she couldn't scream anymore. While Rachel was helpless in the garage, the crew talked about gang raping her and tried to figure out what to do next. As they ate pizza, played video games, and smoked pot, poor Rachel must have been lying there in horror and confusion of the ultimate betrayal of her friends. Trissa Connor, the owner of the house and girlfriend to one of the gang members, came home from her nursing classes at Everett Community College, and when she entered the garage, she was horrified to find a blonde-haired woman bound and gagged on the garage floor. Trissa walked into the garage, saw Rachel beat up, tied up, and lying on the floor, and she went back to the kitchen to get a knife to try to cut her hands and feet loose, Detective Pence told True Crime Daily. But Diggy intervened and stopped her from saving Rachel. Rachel's hope for survival was slowly fading. Trissa was ordered to leave the garage and began hearing sounds of a beating. She later saw the men stuff Rachel inside of a large black duffel bag and then into the back of a jeep. Diggy, Maurice, and two others then began to drive 30 miles into the mountains. Maurice, who Rachel had trusted with her life, had just taken part in her kidnapping. According to police, the young man talked about renting a hotel room and letting her heal, but that would not become the final plan for that faithful evening. 
Once they arrived in the foothills of the Cascade Mountains, Diggy and two others left to go get shovels. Shockingly, they left Maurice there to watch Rachel in what is to turn out as the ultimate betrayal of their friendship. While Diggy and the others were gone getting supplies, Rachel told Maurice that she knew that she was going to die in the mountains outside Seattle and that he was the only one there that could help her. According to court documents, Rachel pleaded with him not to kill her and not to let her drown. Maurice told her that he did not think that it would go that far, but her pleas would fall on deaf ears. Instead, Maurice chose loyalty to Diggy and the Northwest Mafia, rather than saving the life of his supposed best friend during that last moment of freedom before the gang returned. They get out there and unload the shovels from the jeep. Rachel is making noise, Detective Pence told True Crime Daily. Diggy takes the shovel and he hits the side of the duffel bag as hard as he can. They then proceed to dig her grave as Rachel lied there in the dark woods, possibly still conscious. Maurice was smoking and drinking a soda in the car when Diggy told him to get out and help. He did exactly what he was told. Diggy would then tell another gang member to get Rachel out of the duffel bag and strip her. Following his orders, they took all of her clothes and her jewelry. According to the detective, she begged them to let her keep a ring that her best friend Corey Haynes had given her, but Diggy coldly told her no. Being the independent and rebellious young woman that she was, Rachel told the group of men that she wanted to walk to her own grave. As she stepped down into the shallow hole, the soil cold underneath her feet. Rachel was then told to lie face down in the grave. She got on her knees and she started to pray. Diggy told her not to worry about it. She would be up with him soon. As others watched on, Diggy began shooting Rachel in the back of the head until the gun jammed. Then he cleared the jam and emptied the gun into her. Maurice would stand by watching his friend die in a most brutal slaying. Diggy then ordered the others to cover the grave. The Northwest Mafia members had a secret pact, and no one was to know what really happened to Rachel, but she was now listed as a missing person. The Berkheimer family rallied together and distributed missing person posters everywhere in Snohomish and King Counties. Police aggressively pursued all tips that came in, but investigators get a break in the case when a tip is received from the mother of one of the gang members, Jeffrey Barth. That tip quickly changes the direction of the investigation and leads police to a red jeep registered to Matthew Durham. The police apprehend Matthew and Sergeant Scott Finter of the Snohomish County Sheriff's Office quickly laid the pressure on the young man who breaks and leads law enforcement to the foothills of the Cascade Mountains. There, they find a shallow gravesite that Rachel was buried in. Matthew Durham proceeded to tell police what had happened in the garage at the house and said that he was ordered by Diggy to drive his vehicle to a remote spot 
a popular place for off-road vehicles, where he was told to drive down a dirt road. Durham went on to tell investigators that Diggy told him where to stop. He said that Diggy carried the duffel bag into the woods, where he could hear him say, Get on your knees, and then he heard gunshots and saw muzzle flashes. When they all returned to the vehicle, Durham was ordered not to speak of the horrific event or he would be killed. Investigators proceeded to pick up the others Durham had identified as taking part in the gruesome murder, including Maurice, Diggy, and Barth. Ultimately, eight people were convicted of crimes related to Rachel's kidnapping and murder. Two received life without the possibility of parole, including Diggy. The rest are all serving substantial time behind bars. I have absolutely no words for this. This was such an insane story when I first heard it that I had to share it here. I'm so glad that all of these absolute pieces of human garbage were caught and are in jail. None of them deserve to see the light of day ever again. To do this to another human being is so mind-boggling to me. May they all rot in jail forever. Well, that is going to do it for today's episode. If you enjoyed the story, please rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. A five-star rating really helps others to find us. Don't forget to join us on Facebook follow us on Instagram, and subscribe on YouTube. If you do then enjoy the stories, please consider supporting the show through Patreon, with monthly bonus episodes starting at the $5 tier. Once again, thank you everyone that's been with me over this last year. It is my dream to make this podcast my full-time job, and I can only get better from here. This last year has been so much fun for me, from producing this podcast to making the episodes into videos for the YouTube channel. I went from Ohio exclusive to all over the United States. I hope that you all keep coming back weekly, and don't forget to share with friends and family to help this podcast grow more and more. Thank you, everyone, and make sure to keep those doors and windows locked. And stay ready for Ohio Unsolved.